This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network, working hard to help perpetuate policies that help small businesses become bigger ones. And now it's time for our own Alex Cortez, who brings us today's story. Jack Marucci is the director of LSU's athletic training, but he's also a dad. My son was, uh, he's about seven, eight years old, Gino, and we used to watch a lot of baseball. I, I didn't play old videos with Pirates, Roberto Clemente, so that became his guy. And he liked Bonds as bad. He saw the black and two-tone wood bat. He goes, Dad, I like that. Man, I want to play with a wood bat. That's different, because wood bats weren't even mentioned back then. You know, now you got wood bat tournaments and everybody likes the wood bat. So uh, I end up calling all these bat companies. They all had stock bats, none more small enough or short enough. Everybody maybe was an inch off. I needed a 27. And they only stopped at 29 or they stopped at 28. So I started looking around and there were some old bats stored here at LSU. I'm looking at them. And then we had a quarterback, Matt Mock. I start talking to Matt. Matt played for the Cubs for three years. I said, Matt, I'm, I'm thinking about making a bat for my son. I'm going to make one. I'm going to bring it in. Tell me what we need to do to, to make this thing tapered right. So I made the first one and uh, top heavy. You know, I use electrical tape to, <laughs> to do whatever. And I, I carved in, I think that one was the Geno Crusher. So the next one I start making, I got a lot better. And that was the Geno Slugger. So he starts getting in Little League, he's using a wood bat. Okay, this is different, but he, he's one of the best hitters. So everybody on the team goes, well, if he's hitting good with that bat, I want one with my kid's name on it. So we'll form a little company, Marucci Bat Company. So I bought a shed. I bought it from Canada. It's a cedar shed. I told the guy what I wanted, because I thought cedar's going to last longer in this weather, the mildew, the, you know, it's not going to rot. I said, I want doors in the front and the back. He goes, why do you want that? I said, have you ever lived in Louisiana? I said, it's like living on the equator. I said, I need airflow. So I put a fan in there, and that was my bat shop. And then, you know, that was 2002. Jack went to the trouble of buying a shed when he was just making a few bats for his kid and some little league friends. Because I had to get a lathe, I had to put it somewhere, and I had a carport. So I ended up... After football, I always joke around. I said saving was a little stressful, so it was a nice stress relief to get away. That's championship coach Nick Saban. So I'd spend nights, and the neighbor would come over and go, what are you doing? There's sawdust everywhere. I go, I'm making bats. He goes, you're making bats? He goes, give me a couple. You know, everyone, as soon as they saw it, they go, oh, 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 I want one. But he didn't charge them for it. I wasn't at first. So I started 25 bucks. I mean, the wood cost probably... 15 and because uh, money was never a thing I, I felt bad I felt bad that I was going to charge somebody for it then I said well I better start charging because you know because this is getting a little bit ridiculous <laughs> well one day Jack was going to hang with a friend of his Eduardo Perez who just happened to be a major league player and we're catching up and I told him what I was doing. He goes, bring me one up. I said, all right. And he gave me a model, which was a common model. Everything was based off of Louisville Slugger models, a C243. I said, all right, I think I can find one in the pile because LSU had some wood bats laying around. And I found 
one that I would hang it on the hanger. I have two hangers, you know, I'd straighten out the, the wire and it would hang right over the lathe. So I'm looking at it and I could, you know, feel it. I would do it by eye and feel. I would cut the back. I think I made him two. And I mean, what's he gonna do with it? Maybe he's just gonna put it up in his house. So he meets me in front of the hotel and he, and he pulls out the box and his eyes light up. And he goes, man, he goes, I'm gonna use this tonight. I said, what? I said, this thing's gonna explode, Eddie. I said, I seen seven and eight year olds swing this. I said, you're gonna swing this, this thing? He goes, I'm gonna sneak it in because I wasn't licensed. You know, yeah, there's all these regulations which you find out. And uh, he goes, I tell you what, I want you to come down for batting practice. I said, okay. He gets me down there and he goes, this bat is unbelievable. Then he introduces me to, to Barry Larkin. He's playing for the Reds. He uh, says, I tell you what, we're playing in Houston. I want you to make me one. <laughs> I said, all right. Then he introduced me to Albert Pujols. One of the best players on the planet. He was very leery, and Eddie talked to him in Spanish. And that was the first bat was ever given to me to, to replicate. So me and my son go to Houston. And Eddie says, get there early for batting practice. He wants you to bring the bat. So I'm walking in the stadium with a bat. I said, I, I gave it to my son. I go, here, Jenna, you take it. He was only, I don't know, nine at the time. And I said, they won't yell at you. I said, I'm not going to bring a bat in the, in the stadium. You technically need Major League Baseball's permission to make bats for its players. So for Jack and his son to come into the stadium like every other fan coming for the game and to deliver their bat to one of the guys that was actually going to play was pretty darn rogue. We walk all the way down, they're taking batting practice. And there's people around in the stands. I don't know what to do, it's the first time you know, I've done this. And um, Larkin kind of sees us, he gives us thumbs up, and everyone behind us is going, oh, that's funny, he recognized, you know. We're in the stands with everybody else, right behind the dugout. They're all trying to get autographs, and there's people everywhere. So the bat boy comes over. We hand the bat over to him, everyone's going, wow, how's he getting him to sign that bat? They're all going, yeah, how's he getting a sign? We're trying to get all of our, they're kind of getting mad. So the bad boy takes it right over to Larkin. Larkin starts putting on the, they call it a modus stick, the tackiness and like pine tar it up. And everyone starts going, wait a minute, he's going to hit with that bat. <laughs> you just brought it to him. He starts taking BP. So we're watching the game, his second at bat, he was the first guy to get a hit with up the middle. He goes, hey, that's big time. And um, that was the first hit. And to me, I said, that was it. I mean, I'm, I, this thing was in my backyard a couple days ago, and this guy's using a Major League Baseball. I said, oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, this is ridiculous. And when we come back, more of the story of Jack Marucci, the director of LSU's athletic training and the founder of Marucci Sports. Here on Our American Stories, Our American Dreamers series continues after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and we're back with Our American Stories. And we return to the story of Jack Marucci, a father whose son asked him to make wooden bats that he could use in his little league. And unintentionally, these bats found their way into a major league game. Eduardo Perez, I can't say enough good things about him. He helped the company more than anybody. He was fantastic because he talked to all these players and he's showing them. And I'm sending him more bats and he's sneaking them in the game. And he's leaving me voicemails. Man, I hit Olinia against Nomo. And I mean, it was just the excitement of it was like contraband. You know, we're sending contraband up there. And um, he goes, You're going to get a call from Manny Ramirez. I said, Okay. He goes, You know how Manny is. One of only 25 players ever to hit 500 home runs. So I get a call from Manny Ramirez. He goes, I need some bats for the playoff run. You're going to be in the playoffs. You can't use these bats. So I said, well, Manny, we're, we're about to take off. We're about to play Georgia. And so we're getting on a flight, and I'm cutting them off. And I said, let me get back, and I'll cut them. So I spent three nights making bats because... One of them I didn't quite like, so I redid it. I made three bats for him. I said, maybe maybe I'll use them for batting practice or whatever. I don't know. And uh, so I put a model number on it. It's called a CB24. So this is 2004 now. And when I got pretty good by then. The finish, I, I was hand-doing everything, putting a nice, I mean, it looked shiny. It looked like furniture. That's what Eduardo Presnell said. It looks like furniture. Fast forward a couple years ago, I saw Orlando Cabrera on that same team. And why he's significant, I'm watching the game and Orlando Cabrera is using these bats in this playoff game. So I asked him, I never talked to Orlando about it. He used Manny's bats I sent him. I said, weren't you afraid you're gonna get in trouble? He goes, no. He goes, let me tell you something. I hit like 370 in that series. And those bats, that ball was coming off. So this was two years ago I'm talking to him about that 2004 playoff. And he goes, you know, I remember those bats like it was yesterday. And he goes, I always wanted to know. I didn't know what company it was. I wanted to order more, but never heard of it. And he goes, that model number, that CB. I said, well, let me tell you something. Somebody gave me a tip about five, six months after that series. They were on eBay. I found two of them. I have them in my office. I bought them back. I didn't tell them who I was. I have those two bats that you hit with in the playoffs. Cabrera hits it deep in front. So I said, you know what the CD stood for? He goes, no, I said, Curse Buster. I put CD to break the curse, the Curse Buster of the Yankees. The Red Sox hadn't won a World Series since 1918, 86 years ago, allegedly cursed by their selling of Babe Ruth to the Yankees all the way back in 1919. The Red Sox were down three games, and they came back, and they won the World Series. And I have those bats in my office. I told that story of the Hall of Fame. They wanted them. You know, it's just, it's one of those things. You just never know. And um, so Marucci bats kind of started taking off. And the next big player would be Carlos Beltran. Carlos Beltran, and we end up having the whole Met team. And all those people in the division saw those bats. Those guys were hitting well in the Phillies took off with Ryan Howard, won the World Series. Our whole team was covered with our bats. The word of mouth 
was unstoppable, and especially about the terrifically crazy stories that major leaguers like Carlos Beltran had and shared. At the time, you know, he ordered a half dozen. I always wanted him to order small amounts because I had to cut them at the time. And, and, and then, then we got more automated, obviously, but I, I was getting tendonitis. I, I swear to God, I, I got bad. This is the first time I had epicondylitis. I told him, that I, I would tell him that, and I would tell the clubhouse guy, if it's a bad guy, I don't care if he's the best player, but we don't want to do bats for him. We, we were trying to turn down business because the quality of wood, we only have so much. So he orders the bats, we ship them out, and I get a phone call from him. Jack, you... You only sent me five bats. I ordered six. I said, I know. He goes, what do you mean you know? I said, do you understand that I was trying to get you the six bat? I cut like 10 to 12 bats. They weren't the quality I wanted in silence. He goes, that is unbelievable. So he goes, You're not, you don't make like batting practice bats? No. What do you mean batting practice bats? So being naive and thinking, I'm just going to give you the best quality. Companies that he was using says, you know, I only can get, I'm not going to mention companies, but he going to use four to five bats out of the dozen. He felt the other ones were subpar. That's how they did it. Even for the most elite players in the most elite baseball league on the planet, the greatest of the great, it would be like giving Michael Jordan a pair of $30 sandals to play basketball in. If this is how they service the top, how do they service the rest of us. Our bats didn't matter if you were the lowest guy tower pool. It's the same wood. It was always the same. Nothing. There was no variance. And he loved it. So I always told people, you know, we were always chasing the quality. You're not going to chase the dollar. You're not going to chase that money. Chase the quality. The stuff will come. A lot of people flippantly say that they're focused on quality. It's one of those inescapable buzzwords like customer-focused, but that is rarely true. At Marucci, they refuse to put their seal on a bat unless it is absolutely perfect. We're dependent on an organic piece of material that it's not like a metal bat where you can fabricate it. You're not fabricating a piece of wood. You're dependent on Mother Nature, so you can get in a piece of wood and it may have ingrown bark, it could have defoliation on it, it may not dry the right way, it could bend up bowing. So now you got to warp. So there's so many factors. And that's why the company decided to buy a wood mill on an Amish farm in Pennsylvania so that they could have a stable supply source and one that they can control. At least try to. And still... If you look at the wood that comes in, probably only 13 to 14% is used for Major League Bats because of how selective we are. Their 86% rejection rate is absolutely nuts, and it's actually even worse, or Jack would say even better, given the commitment behind it. Once the approved wood gets into their process, they're able to make about 1,200 bats a day and a big chunk of them won't make it through their quality control checks, about 300 of them. A fourth of their employees' daily work gone and wiped away. This translates into an actual rejection rate of 89.5%. And for some context on this, for how it is for most businesses, 
Johnsonville Sausage founder Ralph Steyer told us that he was concerned about their rejection rate of 5%, and he ended up getting it down to 0.5%. One bat maybe touched 22 to 24 sets of hands before it's out on the major league field. So it's, it's, we're just, we're obsessive on quality. Then we start developing a, an idea. Players wanted to become part of what we're doing. Other companies are paying players to use their stuff. We've never paid a player to use a bat. Never thought, why would I do that? They, they want them. Why would I? Here's a novel idea. They want to buy into us. So we have 18, probably 18 Major League Baseball players are investing in the company. So there's a lot more people that have probably benefited than I am, even financially, which is, which is good. Jack could do that, given that he doesn't care about the money. His concern is a greater one. The clubhouse guys loved us because we weren't in there all the time and we weren't trying to sell to everybody, you know. I've told players if they act up early on that we don't want to do bats for you. If you're embarrassed, you wouldn't believe some of the conversations. We had a player throw a bat in the minor leagues and I told him if we, if we do this again, we're done. We're not making your bats anymore, you know. And it, Some of these guys were never told stuff like that, but I, I believe that was the right thing to do. When you're not desperate like that, it makes you different, but then when you become a little bit driven by it, it changes things. So we became the number one bat company probably about two and a half years ago. We passed the Louisville Slugger, and uh, by a pretty large margin now. But, um, you know, you're in sport, and it is a game of inches. And if those companies made that bat one inch longer, I wouldn't have probably made bats because they would have made a bat for my son, and that would have been it. <laughs> one inch. One inch. And what a story, folks. Chase the quality, the rest will come. And my goodness, what an idea, letting the Major League Baseball players themselves own a piece of the company rather than chasing them for a darned endorsement. When we come back, more of the life story of Jack Marucci, director of LSU's athletic training, founder of Marucci Sports, here on Our American Stories, Our American Dreamers segment and series continues. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with the story of Jack Marucci, who went from making wooden bats for his kid to becoming the number one selling bat maker in Major League Baseball in the matter of only a decade. As a reminder, Jack Marucci is a world-class athletic trainer. He wasn't a world-class woodmaker or really a woodmaker at all. He took an 8th grade woodshop class, and that was about it. He had to buy second-hand equipment, a lathe, for $150 just to hope to fulfill his son's simple dream of playing with a wood bat. So how is it even possible that this non-woodmaker, non-baseball expert made a bat that was so good that it became the highest selling in Major League Baseball? 
Was it pure luck? Did he just accidentally make something that was the best? From the outside looking in, it may seem like it. How did how'd you learn wood? How did we do it? I said, well, you go to the University of Google and you can learn a lot. Then you can go to, then you get a master's at the University of YouTube. And you know, you, there's so many resources if you use them and, and you have connections to call people. You talk to the physicist up in Michigan who's done a lot of testing and you learn, you pick their brain. You, you learn about wood with the people who make the drumsticks with all the great rock bands and you know, there is, a, there, is, there is something to the type of wood and the way you dry it, and there is formulas, but you can learn that. You can, if you, if you wanna, the resources are there, if, if you have the passion for it, you can. If you have the willingness to. Jack was around 37 years old then, and a lot of folks at that age aren't willing to learn new things. Heck, I'm 29, and this city boy turned country boy, finds it absolutely daunting to learn new things like taking care of a riding lawnmower. I, I think it's part of our nature. That's why our parents and grandparents came over to this country. They were willing to take chances. I think it's built inside of us. I think we're a little bit more adventurous maybe because of that. My mom was 11 when she came from Spain and my grandfather's from Italy. So we're half Spanish, half Italian, but, and that was the makeup of most of the people we grew up with. Everybody was pretty ethnic. And, you know, we went to the Italian church and St. Teresa's. We thought that's how it was everywhere. Notice how Jack said the Italian church, not the Catholic church. In immigrant hotbeds like Jack's Uniontown, Pennsylvania, or my ancestor's Chicago neighborhood of Bridgeport, each ethnicity had its own Catholic church. No, it wasn't the Catholic, it was the Italian church. We went to, there was the Polish church, and you had the uh, Russian Orthodox church. That's how it was. So, I mean, you think, uh, you know, that's all you know as a kid. But um, her dad came over to be a coal miner. And we went back to see her where she grew up, and it was like San Diego. I'm going, why would your dad leave this place? They lived right by the ocean. But I guess times were so bad, they had a civil war, the economy was bad, and the war's breaking out. This was like in the early 40s, so. But her dad comes over here, right before the war, War II, and he's trying to save money, bring the family up, but he can't get back and forth. So my mom didn't see him until 11 years, until he could save up the money. So she was 11, the first time she saw her dad. Her sister and her brother came over, didn't know English. They put him in second grade to learn the English and they worked their way up. Then my dad's side, my grandfather came over when he was 15. Then he got deported because you had to be 16. I mean, you can see it on the Ellis Island report. He got to Ellis Island and somehow he got through all that. And they said, well, you're only 15. And they deported him back. So he had to go all the way back. Then he came back when he was 16. And these aren't a couple hour flights that we're talking about here. We're talking about boat rides across the ocean and long ones. It's gonna be probably a month. So he started a restaurant. So we came up kind of in the restaurant business. So my dad ended up being the butcher. My dad did the bartending. We did the managing. Him and his two sisters took over after my grandfather passed and was built from nothing. It was just a little deli. And they built it into a place where banquets could seat up to 
six, seven hundred people. I mean, it's, it just kept growing. And that's when I first probably came across the first professional athletes because we used to check coats, me and my brother. We're like 10 years old, and you're checking coats, man. And they're giving you these big coats, and we'd stay up late, and we're so tired. I mean, it's like almost 1 o'clock, and we never stay up this late. Imagine making your 10-year-old today stay up until 1 a.m. to work for you. You wouldn't be able to. The labor laws would call it child abuse. That was child abuse. <laughs> we were so tired. We'd wrestle in there. We'd have coats all over the place. You know, we'd do whatever. And uh, we'd start being silly and, we'd, you know, we'd give them the coat and we'd, like, we're coughing, go, how about a buck? You know, we'd do something like that. How about a buck? You know, and so, so I mean, we would just do these, all these goofy things, but you could make, if it's a hundred coats, you're making a hundred bucks. You know, you split it, that's 50 bucks each. Not bad for a 10-year-old. Joe Paterno would come in or, you know, for a banquet he was speaking. So we were a sports-oriented family, again, from the, Area where we grew up, a lot of people know the history of even just quarterbacks from there. Within a 50-mile radius of the city of Pittsburgh, they've had 36 NFL quarterbacks, including Dan Marino, Joe Montana, Joe Namath, Jim Kelly, and Johnny Unitas, leading it to be called the cradle of quarterbacks. And by the way, in basketball... Pistol Pete Maravich is from there too. The name Maravich is a very ethnic Croatian. But, you know, I think then, and, and if you look at it from that culture, that's why you had a lot of Italian boxers. That's why you had a lot of Irish. You know, they were immigrants that came over here just trying to do anything to get out of poverty. So they learned to fight, they learned to start a restaurant. So they were very innovative. And I think that we were very fortunate to grow up in that type of culture. But when you're, when you're growing up, you, don't, you have no idea. You're just living and breathing it. Not knowing that life's not like that for a lot of folks. And that this immigrant mentality is a gift. So, so we're going to Bamante's in New York. It's the oldest, I think it's, it's in the top 10 oldest restaurants in the New York metropolitan area. It's in Brooklyn. This restaurant was the one where they did the TV show, The Sopranos. They filmed a lot in there. So I get in there. It's not a big place. And I'm sitting there, and all these people start coming in. Bobby Valentine comes in. Here comes Tommy Lasoria comes walking in. Then Joe Piscopo comes walking in. Then Leonardo DiCaprio comes walking in. I'm sitting next to the guy. We're, we're laughing. We're going to wake up tomorrow. Go, this, this really happens. These people just start marching. All these Italians. Jack yeah, then here's like, here I am. Yeah, here I am from Uniontown, Pennsylvania. And my goodness, if you didn't like Jack Marucci's story in those first two segments, my goodness, the flavor just keeps getting added into the mix. Of course, he's down in Cajun country now, but he was a, a Pittsburgh boy, which means... Football, football, football. But it wasn't just that, folks. That early work experience as a young man, we hear this again and again in our successful entrepreneur stories. Work young. Child labor laws would have probably prevented Jack from getting some of the seminal experiences he needed that formed his character, formed his nature. And he was having fun. Yeah, he was up late, but 50 bucks he split. 50 bucks for a night as a 10-year-old. That'll get you working. 
And of course, that immigrant story. We love the immigrant story here in this country. And remember, he didn't call it a Catholic church. He called it an Italian church. And I know because I went to an Italian church, the Sicilian part of my family. It was not a Catholic church. And that's why I was smiling. And you were too. Jack Marucci's story. What a classic American story. YouTube in his way. Self-taught all the way into becoming America's premier bat maker. His story here on Our American Stories continues after these messages. stories and now the final portion of this remarkable American dreamer's stories on Jack Marucci who went from making wooden bats for his kid to becoming the number one selling bat in Major League Baseball. Let's pick up where we last left off. On Marucci Sports' website there's video testimonies from MLB players including Albert Pujols and Andrew McCutcheon And even though their videos are supposed to be about baseball, how they honor the game and their Marucci bats, both of those guys started talking about their faith. Here's Pujols on hitting his 600th home run. First of all, I need to thank God for giving me the the opportunity and the ability to be able to do that. That's who I give all the glory and all the credit. And here's McCutcheon with just a ton of kids at the annual baseball camp he hosts in his hometown of Fort Meade, Florida. I'd like to thank all y'all for coming, all right? Anybody heard the Lord's Prayer? All right? Before every game, when I go out, I like to go out in the middle of center field, and I like to say a little prayer. Repeat after me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Powerful stuff and stuff that Jack's company keeps in the videos. Most of the media takes these uncool parts out, taking out of their stories what they say is the central force in their lives. It's important to who they are. It's important that people should hear that. That it don't be ashamed of it. I think people are coming more ashamed of it. We'll talk about it. So that's one of those things I think it's gotten slanted a little bit. So I think faith is, it's funny how when hard times come, people, they want faith, they want religion, you know. You should be, when good things, how about thanking it, you know, that, that side of it. Let's not, it's not always one side of it, but it's funny how people evolve back to that. Why is that? Well, there's something pulling you there. Faith is part of hope. And once you take hope away from people, it's not a good thing. You always... And when I talk to athletes, if they're injured, you always have that hope. Faith is the same lines. So faith gives people that hope, gives them comfort. We think that's very important to have that message because that's who they are. It's the right thing to do. And it's important to these people's lives. Paul says that, that, that is, he's strong with that. that that's, that's real now. That's not just saying it. He lives it. Coach Bowden lived it. Coach Bowden didn't cuss. He lived that life 
and Jack doesn't cuss either, even though this Italian Catholic comes from the perfect background for it. Believe it or not, I don't. I never smoked. I don't drink. And we grew up in a, you know, restaurant, and I, and I have nothing against it, but I don't know. I just, I just never, never have it. I'm in an environment where cussing is very uh, <laughs> prominent. We had a coach one time. He came over. I'm not going to mention his name. I talked to him. He came in and goes, you know, I speak two different languages. He goes, I speak English and profanity. <laughs> and he did. I think profanity might have been his uh, dominant uh, language. But, um, uh, and I have not, again, there's, there's not, we're in an environment of it, but, uh, you know, uh, I don't think you have to do that. If you go to church on, on a weekend, you should, it, it's a time to be thankful. <laughs> It's the only time where you really can sit down and, you know, we're so busy. And we try to say our prayers at night, but a lot of times, you know, we'll fall asleep or we're, we're exhausted or we, we do. We don't. But that's a time where you're captured and just be thankful for what you have instead of going over all the negative stuff. But that's self-talk. That's a whole other topic. And what we try to do, and you know, how the mind can overpower you. So, but that's where faith and religion can give you a little more clarity. If, you, if you're invested in it. I've seen people change because of that. We have a player and his name's Cecil Collins. Cecil Collins was probably the best running back we ever had here. He only played three games and three and a half games. That's it. And yet Jack is insisting that he's still the best they've ever had. You can look at the YouTube stuff. He had a little, he, he struggled as a young player. He got in trouble. Unjustified, he was in prison for about 18 years. 18 years, he just got out a couple years ago. I reconnected, been trying to help him with some things, invite him to the bowl game. If, if, if religion didn't change his life, then it hadn't changed anybody. He doesn't cuss anymore. He, he is a true testament. And he almost died in prison. He was eating, um, it was like chicken and rice. There was a bone that cut him. He was internally bleeding. And they weren't gonna take him to the dog. He finally got there. The surgeon saved his life. He was 150 pounds. And this guy, his personality, he is a unbelievable, he's a gem. He's got a family, he's, he's, he's becoming an electrician. Just a productive, this guy has a future. In just the way that Jack says, this guy has a future. You can hear how proud Jack is of him. And yet that's not how a lot of mainstream culture would look at him. He's the best running back that LSU's ever had could have made tens of millions of dollars in the NFL. But now, he's an electrician. And you're saying that he's a gem and has a future? It says a lot about who Jack Marucci is. An integrity that other people can't help but to respond to. When we were together, Jack pulled out his phone and played for me a voicemail that someone left for him the other day. He didn't do it to brag. He was just so tickled by it. I'm so happy for you. and I'm, I don't know you. I'm proud of you. I love what you do and how you do it. love the story of your company. I wanted to let you know that John Brubaker shared it with my entire Major League staff here in spring training. We're listening to Clint Hurdle, the manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And there were only a few of us that knew the story going in, so for about 50 guys, it was the first time they heard. Basically, a dad made a bat for a boy that he loved, and it's turned into what it's turned into. 
um, because it was just about unconditional love and uh, there was no motive other than to be a dad, your servant, and then the way you've gone about it since then so professionally. So if I can ever be of service to you, please let, let me know. Um, I will send you my contact information. Um, I send out a daily email of encouragement. Um, then I might send you the website just in case you'd like to join. Uh, but John Brubaker's a very good friend of mine. He speaks volumes about your integrity and character. So, you're all good by me. Let me know if I can be a service. Maybe we connect sometime during the season. Uh, love to run into you. Uh, buy you dinner or something. Okay? Over and out, buddy. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. That phone call also says a lot about Clint Hurdle. To be operating at the highest level of your profession as he is, and to make the time to call someone, someone you don't know, just to tell them how impressed you are by them and how they've lived their life. Think we could do that more in our lives? I know that I can. For our American stories, I'm Alex Cortez. And what a story. I think that may be my favorite right up there with Ralph Lauren and Bernie Marcus. And Our American Dreamer stories can be found at OurAmericanNetwork.org. We've done a bunch. And my goodness, great work as always to Alex Cortez. Our great crew here goes all over this country to find these great stories. And the redeeming virtue and feature of our stories is that we love to shine the light on the good. And unlike most media enterprises who shine light on the ugly and the train wreck we love light and we love real hope and darkness well turn to another channel if that's what you're looking for and our american dreamer series is brought to us by the great folks at job creators network and job creators network works hard to fight for public policies that help small businesses become bigger ones and by the way the founder of job creators network is a hero of mine bernie marcus who at 49 years old found himself out of work He and two partners, Ken Langone and Arthur Blank, started a little company you all know now, and it's called Home Depot. And those three men built this great enterprise and then have spent their later years giving a lot of their money away and showing the virtue and generosity uh, that capitalism can bequeath. And I want to add also that you can get all of Our American Dreamer series stories over at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And so I want to leave this story playing the manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates' message, his message that was on Jack Marucci's phone because it's worth hearing again. And don't we all wish that a message like this would be left on our phone by a complete stranger and that our life's work, what we do in our lives, our integrity and our character can leave this imprint and can make this kind of difference. Integrity and character, we talk about it a lot here on this show. Let's leave with Clint Hurdle. This is Our American Stories. Basically, Dad made a bat for a boy that he loved, and it's turned into what it's turned into Um, because it was just about unconditional love, and uh, there was no motive other than to be a dad your servant and then the way you've gone about it since then so professionally so if I can ever be of service to you please let let me know um, I will send you my contact information 
Well, I got a daily email of encouragement. Um, I might send you the website just in case you'd like to join. Uh, but John Brubaker is a very good friend of mine. He speaks volumes about your integrity and character. So, you're all good by me. Let me know if I can be a service. Maybe we connect sometime during the season. Uh, love to run into you. To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook and go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we can send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break. Habib and this is Our American Stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show, the arts, history and sometimes even public policy but for the most part it's just stories you care about, stories we care about and this next one, well we're going to let Lauren tell the story herself Lauren Masaros joins us now she's a nurse at the University of San Francisco Medical Center and also well, late in life discovered a love for horses Lauren, thanks for joining us Thank you. And, you know, for anybody who's watching fires raging around the country, and particularly in California, and seeing the deadly images, this story is about Lauren's close encounter with some serious fires up near her home. And, uh, Lauren, talk about the fires and how quickly they came upon you uh, up there in Santa Rosa. Well, unfortunately, no one knew how fast these fires would spread. They were coming down the mountains behind our homes at about 70 miles an hour. So most of the people in my neighborhood just woke up by neighbors banging on their doors, and many houses were already on fire. It came very close very quickly. And unlike hurricanes, tornadoes, where people at least have some advance warning, you know, it's hard to get real advance warning when these things suddenly jolt up at you. So you really didn't know it was coming, did you, Lauren? We did not. Um, when I went to bed at 10 o'clock, I was able to, I smelled something burning, but sometimes people light their fireplaces. And we do have lots of fires up here, and but they never come down the hills. I mean, it literally crossed six lanes of traffic because it was moving so fast with the wind, which no one expected to happen. Now, a little digression here, you you know, you developed the love of horses a little bit late in life. You're a Jersey girl who migrated out to California. Talk about this, this passion. When did it happen? And talk about your home. Describe your home, your setting. And I think it would interest some folks who are from the Northeast. I originally grew up in New Jersey. The idea of having a horse on my property or our lush quarter acre would have been real, real odd to our neighbors at the minimum. Yeah. Well, I was first I was living in San Francisco and after about two really horrible rainy winters, I was getting very depressed in the rain and the fog. And a friend that I work with has had horses her whole life and said, you know, you need to do something, get yourself out. And I thought, well, horses work for her. So I started going to local stables. And after I decided how much I loved horses, I wanted to move and have a piece of property where I could have my horses with me which is why I ended up in Santa Rosa at about 60, I'm about 60 miles north of San Francisco. Oh, so you've moved a little bit out, but this is the life you wanted and the peace you were looking for and the connection to the, to, to the earth, I guess, in the end, Lauren, to be connected more to, to, to life on the ground. And so this, this life on the ground gets invaded by fires. And what's the first thought you think of in your property? Who, who, are, the, who are the people you're thinking of the most? 
and 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 talk in particular about the three horses you have. Well, when my neighbor woke me up, that was my first thought. What do I do? And it was such a catastrophe. It was not like you could call 911. And that first night, we were unable to get out because the neighborhood was literally burning and the street, there was one street to get out of my house and that street was on fire. And even if I had had a horse trailer on the property, the roads were clogged with abandoned cars because people trying to escape their cars were catching on fire and they were running on foot. So we waited out that night and just moved the horses as far away from the fire as we could down to my neighbor's house and just hope for the best during the night. And I got the horses out the next morning. And talk about how you got one of them out, because a, a picture prompted this, uh, this call, Lauren, though we want to talk to you about more serious things, but it's, a, it's quite a picture. It's, it's your pony in the back of a Honda Accord, and it's not a hatchback. Lauren, it's a, actually a sedan. <laughs> so talk about yeah. talk about how you managed to lure a pony and why you needed to choose the, the car as the best mode of transportation for a pony, which, by the way, we're not suggesting in normal day-to-day life. No, well, my friend Carol, who um, has the uh, certificate where she can go into devastated areas, so she was able to get to me. Um, there were several, there was many people that were calling me with big trailers willing to evacuate. And I asked them to please go to the ranches where there were more horses to evacuate that were literally still on fire that morning. So as my friend Carol was coming, I was thinking, well, she's got a two horse trailer and I have three horses. So she's been a horsewoman since I think before she could walk. So she got her trailer here. And the first thing we did was get the two mares into her trailer, and they went in so beautifully and so easily. And after we had them in and closed the trailer doors, we just looked at the mini horse and looked at the Honda and said, well, we have to get them out of here. So we just opened up the back doors of the Honda and held a carrot, and he walked right in. And lucky you, the the horses saved all three are fine. And, you know, we can't go uh, much longer without mentioning that not not all horses and animals fared as well. And all kinds of people, Lauren, risk their lives to save not just fellow human beings, but have risked their lives to save their animals, too. And we've seen the images, and we'll continue to as we see fires rage in the coming year and years. Talk about that as well and those images. Well, it's just to see the true human spirit come out at times where people, you know, literally were rushing back into the barns. I have friends who had their, their horses stabled behind us and they were able to get, if they hadn't gotten to the, to the fire in time, the horses were in the stables and the stables had burnt down and they kind of rode through the fire with the firemen and got those horses out of the stables into the pastures and they saved at least 30 horses. Unfortunately, some horses did die. But these people risk their lives, and as we're seeing in Southern California, people running into burning stables to get their horses out. Not only horses, their dogs and their cats and anything, you know, any other living thing that was there for them to save. And we've been listening to Lauren Massaros, and what a good story. And that's what we do here every day on Our American Stories. Tell the good, talk about the cooperation that happens out there in America each and every day, and just the humanity Uh, displayed here in danger, in harm's way. People came out not just to save fellow human beings, but four-legged friends as well. And that picture of a pony in a Honda 
Well, that says it all. And Lauren Masaros' story, so many people suffering from natural disasters in this country, but also experiencing the humanity of this country, the soul of America. Lauren Masaros' story here on Our American Stories. down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And you're listening to Laurence Olivier, the greatest actor of the 20th century, reading the 23rd Psalm, and we're bumping in with that because, as you know, it's National Bible Week all week long. In 1941, Franklin Delano Roosevelt declared this week, Thanksgiving week, National Bible Week, and it has been so ever since. And joining us, because this man is the sponsor of this week's material and content, is Chuck Stetson. He's the CEO of the Stetson Family Office and Essentials in Education. And his family office and Essentials in Education focus on the importance of teaching the Bible in our schools to better understand literature, history, and life. And not to mention how studying the Bible can help us shape our character, our civilization. His group's textbooks, The Bible and Its Influence, is currently being taught in 650 high schools in 45 U.S. states, and their wisdom literature from the Bible curriculum is the group's latest offering. And Chuck, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Lee. Chuck, I wanted to start off with a simple question. Uh, Why do you think it's so important to teach the Bible, both as an educational instrument and also as a cultural one? Well, without students knowing the Bible, they can't fully understand the English language, English literature, history, art, music, or culture. There are over, for example, uh, 1,200 documented references in the Bible to the 36 plays of, in the 36 plays of Shakespeare. If you don't know the Bible, you don't know Shakespeare. And I'll give you one other example. Uh, in Hervin Melville's uh, Moby Dick, you can't get past the first sentence. Call me Ishmael. Well, who's Ishmael? Oh, yeah, the Norton Anthology uh, has a footnote and says he's a wanderer. Do you really think that that's what Herman Melville expected you to know? It's in, indeed true, and we know this time and again, phrases in our, in our vocabulary that we use in common. It's just, well, it's just common knowledge that used to be common, Chuck, and isn't anymore. You're in all these schools, 
And so I think a lot of people, before we dig into the the actual Bible, it's important, some storytelling that we're going to do here today, you know, a lot of families are thinking who are believers, how the heck did you get the Bible into the schools? And now all the non-believers listening going, what the heck's the Bible doing in the schools? And I think this is interesting. And so talk to the non-believers who are listening first, um, and then the believers, and address both of these things. Basically, uh, we work with uh, everyone. We work with all sides of the aisle. And uh, let me just uh, describe a little bit of the history of this. I was challenged to uh, help create something uh, big. It was actually by the National Bible Association that the, uh, sponsors this uh, week. I was on the board, and uh, I saw that George Gallup had some studies uh, and research that showed that 75% of Americans want to see the Bible taught in public schools. 8% of public schools do it, and since it's an elective where it's, where it's in those schools, it, you're reaching 2% of the population um, uh, effectively. You're reaching 25% of the uh, students that take an elective. So you're not reaching very many people. Then uh, I saw that they had this piece that was put together by the First Amendment Center called Religion, Public Schools, a First Amendment Guide, which was um, under the Clinton administration. It was uh, sent out to every single superintendent uh, in the country. And I called up the First Amendment Center and said, well, what about the Bible? They said, well, what do you have in mind? And the guy was in my office in uh, two weeks. I explained it. And then uh, 11 months later, we had the Bible and public schools, the First Amendment guide. And the endorsers are kind of interesting. It was the National School Boards Association, but it was also the American Federation of Teachers, the uh, National Education Association. We had Christian groups. We had Jewish groups. We even had the secularists. We even had the people for the American way. So what we did is we found common ground because the U.S. Supreme Court has said that the um, teaching the Bible uh, academically is fine. They just said you can't do it religiously, and that was a 1963 ruling because it had always been done both academically and religiously from the, uh, the first settlers. But okay, in 1963, you can't do it. And what happened is that um, the schools threw the baby out with the bathwater. We're just trying to bring the baby back, and we're trying to do it exactly within the limits of the First Amendment and the First Amendment Guide, which has uh, very broad support in the educational community. And people actually understand that this is something that's important for the kids because, you know, the kids need, really need to decode the world around them, and why are we denying them that? Indeed, and you're, you most recently, Chuck, commissioned a study to explore the ties between the study of the Bible and its results on increased academic success and behavior. And by the way, as we look out into the world, we know that young people are suffering more than ever before. So much is coming at them, uh, and so fast. Loneliness is at record highs. Heck, we had discussed the fact that England has a minister of loneliness now because there are medical repercussions of loneliness. We know depression's up. And so knowing all those things and the opioid crisis that's sweeping the country, uh, the, the suffering that we're experiencing as a country is at a very high level for many. And we know that love is the antidote and in the end wisdom is the antidote. Talk about uh, that study about the Bible and its relationship to character development and other matters. We commissioned an independent academic to look at it. He did what's called a meta-study. He looked at 40 studies that were already done where they looked at the issue of character as taught in the Bible, which is love, integrity, 
compassion and self-discipline and uh, looked at students' grades where it was taught what happened. And it turns out that when this is taught, these character values are taught, the grades go up. So um, I thought that was very interesting. And, you know, the, you know, you can talk a lot about character. And I think there's good characters, a character in the Bible. There's also character um, that the Greeks taught in the 7th century B.C. It was the Iliad that was taught as a way of teaching uh, the kids about instructing the kids on character. And, and let's, uh, oh yeah, let's go to the first line of the Iliad. Sing of the rage of Peleus' son Achilles. It's about rage and revenge. So let me, let me frame it as a question uh, to the audience. Uh, what do you want to hear? Do you want to hear the type of character which is rage and revenge? That actually worked out real well, I think, in uh, ancient Greece. Or do you want to have the type of uh, things that are taught, character traits that are taught in the Bible? Compassion, kindness, meekness, humility, forbearance, forgiveness, and love. You know, it's totally different. Uh, which, what would you like to have your kids uh, learn? And it's kind of interesting. The kids that came in have come in and taken our course since uh, we started in 2005. We've had 150,000 kids uh, take the course. They tell us that uh, they come in actually knowing nothing. We've been able to document that. But they tell us that 72% tell us that they continue to read the Bible afterwards. After starting at zero, um, they get so intrigued with the course. And in a time when trying to keep uh, the attention of kids is um, really hard, and this has gotten their attention. For a lot of families listening who may not be religious, and for those who are, and by the way, for those who are on the fence, you know, you grew up in faith, you've sort of wandered away. We know from all the years now that we've been doing this show that all three are listening to this show because of its voice, because of its love, because it's not a dark show. It's a, it's a show about lightness and about beautiful things. And in a world that offers so much darkness, Chuck, and so much cynicism, and so much pain and suffering, uh, we're looking for antidotes. And in the end, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, my goodness, just reading the wisdom literature of the Bible alone is soothing. It turns out that there is no other literature that we can find in the world that does a better job of dealing with suffering. I do a whole teaching on Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You have someone that is taking care of you so you don't want anything. You don't need more money. You don't need anything. You don't need more clothes. You don't need more this or that. And there are going to be some tough times, but you have someone with you. And, you know, that's one of the things that kids are depressed. They're uh, high school kids. They're applying to college. Uh, they're not getting in. They got a lot of competition with their friends. They've got families that are in trouble. There's breakup of families. Uh, they're their normal teenage problems. There's a lot of rough stuff going on. You want to have someone that's kind of looking out after you. And you know what? We also need to look out after others. And that is so true. We have to look out for one another. And we're talking to Chuck Stetson, and we're celebrating National Bible Week all week long here on Our American Stories. And let's face it, if the wisdom literature of the Bible does one thing, it teaches resilience. More with Chuck Stetson here on Our American Stories.
you rock, shout, shout, Elijah Rock, coming up, Lord. This is Our American Stories, and we return with a celebration of National Bible Week with Chuck Stetson, and he's the president of Essentials in Education and the Stetson Family Office and CEO of both. And you're listening to Mahalia Jackson singing Elijah Rocks. And, of course, Elijah was another great character straight out of the Bible. Let's continue to listen to Mahalia. segment, we want to spend some time talking about the relevance of the Bible, the cultural relevance, even to someone like Reverend Martin Luther King. It was especially relevant to him, folks. And then the day before he died, the day before he was assassinated, he flew into Memphis and he insisted on giving a sermon, a sermon in a church. And the sermon was on fear, it was on compassion, it was on love, and it was about a story that stayed with him a very long time. And for some reason, on this particular night, he felt the need to talk about it. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Let's take a listen to the Reverend Martin Luther King on the night before he was gunned down. One day a man came to Jesus. And he wanted to raise some questions about some vital matters of life points he wanted to trick Jesus and show him that he knew a little more than Jesus knew and throw him off base. Now that question could have easily ended up in a philosophical and theological debate, but Jesus immediately pulled that question from midair and placed it on a dangerous curve between Jerusalem and Jericho. He talked about a certain man who fell among thieves. You remember that a Levite? And the priest passed by on the other side. They didn't stop to help him. Finally, a man of another race came by. He got down from his beast, decided not to be compassionate by proxy. But he got down with him, administered first aid, and helped the man in need. Jesus ended up saying this was the good man, this was the great man. Because he had the capacity to project the eye into the thou and to be concerned about his brother. Now, you know, we use our imagination a great deal to try to determine why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. The times we say they were busy going to a church meeting, an ecclesiastical gathering, and they had to get on down to Jerusalem so they wouldn't be late for their meeting. At other times, we would speculate that there was a religious law that one who was engaged in religious ceremonial was not to touch a human body 24 hours before the ceremony. And every now and then we began to wonder whether maybe they were not going down to Jerusalem, down to Jericho rather, to organize a Jericho Road Improvement Association. That's a possibility. Maybe they felt 
that it was better to deal with the problem from the causal root rather than to get bogged down with an individual effect. But I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible that those men were afraid. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem. We rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. You start out in Jerusalem, which is about 1,200 miles, or rather 1,200 feet above sea level. And by the time you get down to Jericho, 15 or 20 minutes later, you're about 2,200 feet below sea level. That's a dangerous road. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the bloody paths. You know, it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking. And he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, lure them there for quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by, and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? And Chuck, you've just heard one of the, I think, one of the great sermons on the Good Samaritan. And my goodness, the lesson this teaches people who are believers and not, well, my goodness, uh, it's timely. And Martin Luther King thought so, because in 1968, he thought this was a relevant story to the times. Speak to that, Chuck. Speak to that. Well, he's right. And I actually have um, driven down that road a couple of times from Jerusalem to Jericho. I know exactly of what he speaks. And um, it's very interesting. If you take the parable of the Good Samaritan, and there's a literary technique uh, called a chiasm. It's in uh, Luke. Uh, If you look at it, you'll find that the word that it focuses on is the word compassion. And as I had mentioned a little bit earlier, this is something that was not in the Greek vocabulary prior to the uh, New Testament. So at this time, it would have not been in the, in the vocabulary. So in essence, the, the Levite and the priest walking by, uh, they were good Greeks in a Hellenized world. Um, that's what you ex- would expect. The idea that anyone would stop for anyone uh, and no less uh, have the enemy stop by and take care of you was, was, had to be totally mind-blowing. We just can't comprehend you know, how, how different that is. And compassion has given us things like the Geneva Conventions and warfare and all that. And one of the things I, I love to do um, when I'm talking to young people, I can ask them, um, uh, do you have compassion? And they say, oh, yeah, that's really important. Um, you know, and these would be people that wouldn't necessarily have gone to church or anything like that. But I can say, how biblical of you? 
because it is biblical, because that's where it shows up. It shows up in the Bible, and it really changed absolutely everything. So uh, Martin Luther King is on the right side of things, and you know what he did is uh, in going to Memphis, people had told him not to go. People had warned him. But he went, and I think what a little bit of what was on his mind is, you know, he just felt an obligation. I think that the um, Samaritan felt an obligation. And, you know, when the, the Samaritan gets off of his donkey and, you know, he's out there taking care of the guy, don't you think that there were some robbers right around in that territory? What, look, look at the risks that he was taking. This was the risk that Martin Luther King was taking. And, you know, it wasn't a, a popular thing to do. But, you know, he thought it was the right thing to do. And if, if we, we it's, it's a little bit of a call to do the right thing, I think. I think so. And as we study America and the abolition movement and almost all the really remarkable things that happened in that regard, where suffering was involved in compassion and great sacrifice. Very often believers and Bible believers led the charge and some great secular people of courage led the charge too. When we come back more with Chuck Stetson. He's the CEO of the Stetson Family Office and Essentials in Education. We're celebrating National Bible Week all week this week here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our National Bible Celebration Week. And you're listening to Bruce Springsteen, and that's Adam Ray's Decane off his Darkness in the Edge of Town record, and he plays that song almost every concert. And it's why I believe people have followed him so long and so deeply. He's been very public in his lyrics and in his work about his struggles with God. And you hear it right there in those lyrics, Adam Ray's Decane, and that's straight out of the earliest story in the Bible. And we're rejoined by Chuck Stetson, and we're talking about the impact of the Bible on Western civilization. And my goodness, this is one of the great rock stars of the 20th century, Bono being the other, and this is what they write about, about. both of them, of course, born into the Catholic Church, both Irish boys. Chuck, talk about what you just heard from Bruce Springsteen, because there it is, the original story, the original family, and all these centuries later, a pop icon from New Jersey still thinking about it and talking about it. 
Well, I think that one of the interesting things is that in Genesis, um, if you look at the narrative arc of Genesis, it starts out with Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain kills Abel uh, and his brother. And, you know, he asks the question, am I my brother's keeper when, when he's questioned by God? Yeah, actually we are. And the key that is very interesting is as we go down through the chapters in Genesis, we see that you know, there are a lot of situations which are very typical today where families don't get along and people fight with each other and you have uh, Isaac and uh, Jacob and you have just a whole bunch of people that didn't get along. But by the end, it's very interesting because the end of Genesis um, even though family members don't agree with each other, uh, what they're actually doing is they're getting along. And I think in some sense, um, Bruce Springsteen has kind of reconciled himself to um, a lot of the issues that he originally had with the church. And, you know, that's the story of Genesis. It's the, really the narrative arc of life. I think, you know, there, there are many times that people uh, move away from the church and they don't like this or they don't like that. But, you know, at the end of the day, as uh, one of my friends, uh, Chuck Colson, he said, it's the most rational way of living. The Bible is the most rational way of living. There just isn't any way to live more rationally than that. And I think that's true. If anybody hasn't read the memoir by Bruce, which was an international bestseller called Born to Run, he confesses in this memoir that he was too tough on his dad and that one day his dad showed up at his door, Chuck, and knocked on the door and had a couple of beers in his hand and Bruce had just given birth to his first son and he was realizing, my goodness, I was looking through the prism of my father through the eyes of a boy and now I'm looking at him as a man, and I'm so much less tough on him. Meanwhile, the father was seeking forgiveness from the son, and he said, Bruce said it was like we had started all over again, and that I was too tough on my dad, and I want to tell everybody listening, that is not the dad I had, it's the dad I thought I had. And it's a confession of a sort, and forgiveness is a big part of, as we know, a big part of, of biblical principles and thinking as well. And talk about that, Chuck. I could talk about a personal experience of my family. My family was very involved, and my father set up Outward Bound South Africa. He went down there in 1983, and he saw uh, apartheid. And uh, my grandfather actually was from Georgia. And so I can remember going in uh, to the South in the 50s where you had uh, the uh, washrooms for the whites and the washroom for the coloreds and the, uh, the um, uh, you know, the, the same thing with the uh, drinking fountains. Um, and Dad said, this is going to go. And so one of the things that he worked on doing is he knew that we had to have some infrastructure in place to bring blacks and whites together. Uh, and uh, he was going to use Outward Bound. But the thing that was very interesting in 1994, when uh, Mandela was going to, uh, is up for being president, uh, if you remember, Chief Boothalese uh, had half the Natales a tribe and uh, Nelson Mandela the other, and Chief Boothalese didn't want his half to, to vote for Nelson Mandela, um, power play, whatever. Um, so there was at this rally four days before the, the elections. Uh, it was in Durban, and uh, the guy, that Michael Cassidy, that was doing it, uh, he just didn't have enough money to bus all the people in. So he mentioned this to uh, one of my father's guys, and uh, the, my father immediately wired the money so that they could 
get the buses, so they filled it up to 30,000 people. Uh, Chief Boothalese uh, was in his uh, private plane. The private plane took off. There was a problem with the compass. They came back. Chief Boothalese ended up going to this rally that he wasn't planning one whit to go to. And four days before the elections, he ended up bringing the tallies in. And it's the first time I know in history where the oppressed took over from the oppressors and there was no bloodshed. Do you know of any other time in history where this has happened? And it was, I believe, because they were Christian. And then we have um, Desmond Tutu was head of the Reconciliation, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And he said, he wrote, he wrote it this way. He said, if we did not have the Truth and Reconciliation Commission where you admitted and you asked for forgiveness, we would not have had an easy time of it. So the forgiveness is, uh, is huge, and that's exactly what happened uh, in uh, South Africa. People were forgiving. Now, it's changed a little bit since then, and I'd still go back. I was just back there recently because we still support Outward Bound South Africa and the original principles because there's still more work to be done. But, you know, it was a really interesting experience, and, you know, we, we, were, we had a firsthand experience with the idea of um, you know bringing people together, people that didn't you know normally get get along with each other, but you know it was an important time in history. Imagine you know we we had a peaceful transition. This has never happened in history that I'm aware of. Chuck, in the end, this thing called compassion, we know where it finds its roots, and we've talked about this a couple of times this hour. I want to play Johnny Cash reading from the Sermon on the Mount. Let's take a listen. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And that's Johnny Cash reading from the Sermon on the Mount. And Chuck, this informed Martin Luther King, right? What a vision he had for the people who were trying to oppress him and African Americans in the South. And it was to love them. And at the same time, the early and young Malcolm X was calling for violence. Now, an older Malcolm repudiated that. But Malcolm in 1963 had a very different message for America than Martin Luther King did. One was the Christian message. Let's leave on this thought, that Sermon on the Mount reading from Johnny Cash. We got about a minute and a half left, Chuck. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth was actually a diminishment because when, some, when someone offended you, you would really hit them over the head with a baseball bat, might even kill them. So the eye for an eye was to, to balance it out a little bit more. But then Jesus takes it one more step and basically says, uh, look, no violence at all. You know, uh, let's stop the violence. Let's get along with each other. We may disagree, but let's get along. Well, Chuck Stetson, thanks for all you do, and thanks for sponsoring and supporting our National Bible Week. And again, Franklin Delano Roosevelt first declared National Bible Week 
the week of Thanksgiving in 1941. It's been that way ever since. And Chuck and his family office and Essentials in Education have terrific materials, both a great book and also curriculum as it relates to wisdom literature. And you can find that curriculum and learn more at teachthebibleinschools.org. That's teachthebibleinschools.org. And by the way, the curriculum is Wisdom Literature from the Bible, and the book is The Bible and Its Influence, again, in 650 schools in states across America. Find out how you can bring Bible education to your schools. It's not against the law, folks. If it's done right, it's inclusive. It is not exclusive. Chuck Stetson, National Bible Week, the story of the story of how to bring the Bible into our schools in a beautiful and good way. Chuck, thanks for what you do. And join us for the rest of the week as we celebrate National Bible Week put into place by Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1941. And we're here to keep that great tradition going that FDR started here on Our American Stories.